lovely. My name is Ben. If I haven't met you, I'm the youth minister here. Uh, and we're going to be going through the whole book of Ruth tonight, so it'd be good to keep it open, which I've already closed. Uh, so we did read the first two chapters, but for the most part, we'll be focusing on the second half. Uh, so I'm going to pray just before we get into this. Would you like to pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come and hear from your word. We thank you that you show us who you are in it, and we pray as we come to it tonight that you might help us to listen, to understand, and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So tonight we're going to be thinking about where is God in the ordinary? Where's God in kind of mundane, day-to-day life? As we go about shopping, as we deal with difficult family, as we just go about life, where, where's, where's God at in this? And so I'm going to go through two stories, okay? They're going to seem a bit obscure. That's okay. You'll be fine. I'm a youth minister. I do this. There's going to be two stories. And as we go through them, uh, it'll kind of make sense a bit later on what's going on. So the first is a man named Jack Kerouac. Who here is familiar with Jack Kerouac? Anybody? A few people. That's okay. So let me set the scene a bit. Jack was born in 1922 in Massachusetts. Growing up, his family in 1922 was pretty typical of the time, you know, do what I say, very authoritarian. They were strict because Jack grew up at the end of an era that's known as modernism, if you're interested. And so over a long time, people become better and better in different fields of science, of thinking, Uh, people have been better at medicine, better at astronomy. We started to understand the world better and better. And increasingly in that, God had kind of been pushed out of the picture because these things somehow made God irrelevant. Uh, You know, now we had all the science understanding, there was no need for God. As people looked around, all they could see was kind of the church's involvement wasn't much more than holding humanity back. It kind of, you know, they were a bit behind logic. They weren't really into science. Uh, Nietzsche, who is philosopher from that time, if you're into philosophy, uh, said the Christian resolution to find the world ugly and bad has made the world ugly and bad. And so as we looked around, got out of the picture, so many new technologies, so many medical advancements, it came to us, that we could actually we could, we could be our own saviours. We could actually be the ones who hold the answer. Humanity actually hold the answer for the problems of this world. We could create a perfect world. And this was kind of the mindset that Jack was born into. Structure, order, logic, reason. Then Jack, uh, in 1939, at the age of 17, was sitting in his room, he heard the radio crackle and an announcement came out from England that consequently this country is now at war with Germany. And World War II struck. 60 million people were killed in World War II. I don't know if you've ever really thought about the enormity of that. That's three times Sydney. Between 4.9 and 5.9 million Jews alone were slaughtered. That's more than the population of Sydney. 
In fact, all the technological advances and reasoning and understanding, which was meant to kind of bring about a better humanity, and, and let me note here, the problem isn't the advancements in science and technology, they're great. The problem's still the same problem from before, which is people. Uh, they, they brought around these great advancements, but it all culminated in something that was so catastrophic, so huge, so enormous, the kind of culmination of all this was the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. It literally incinerated people where they stood. 179,000 people died straight away. 20,000 soldiers. Those who didn't die and were in the nearby vicinity died not too long after, or many from the radiation down the track. The war ends, and Jack, like so many others, left the army. Now, America was booming. The hundreds of factories that used to billow smoke as they smelted lead for the bullets and parts for the jeeps, well, they'd now started making components for fridges, for washing machines, for cars. And as America was booming, Jack Kerouac looked around, and all he felt was despair. See, God had almost been removed from the picture. Humanity, reason, and logic had all seemed to really failed. What was left? Well, the average American turned to the fridge. Not food. That's not, that's not a comment on Americans there, particularly not for you, who's American. Uh, no, feeling the pain and brokenness of the world, the result of scientific discovery not changing people's natures, we now look to find meaning in what people owned, what we bought, what we consumed, the lifestyle we could create by just having stuff. You know, that cycle started of, I really hate working, like work's the worst thing ever, but I need to work because like, I need to live, yeah? Like I, I need to own stuff. Uh, and I need to own stuff to have a good life, but the only way I get that stuff is, is to work. And, and I kind of hate working. And that kind of cycle began. And as Jack walked down the street and he saw all this, he looked around. He actually hated it. He thought, this, this is pointless consumerism. Working to buy stuff but hating every moment of it. He hated what science and logic had achieved with the war. He hated what the war had done, and he hated the rigid structure that was there before the war. It seemed so tight and inflexible. Just despair. So in 1950, he thought, why, why bother? Why do all this? I'm not going to be part of this. He did something that was radical, something that was completely different to the rigid, structured, consumerist society around him. Jack is where we get the phrase, hit the road, or hit the road, Jack comes from him. He gets a couple of his mates, they buy a combi, they get in it, and they just, they just drive. They just go for a drive, they have no real direction, they drive kind of partying, taking every type of drug they can, doing whatever they want. Some nights they go to a strip club and get blind drunk, other nights they decide to spend lots of money on really expensive dining and champagne. Not a care in the world, as they kind of travelled around uh, with jazz pouring out of their combi. Well, we'll get back to Jack in a bit. I said these are connected. This will make sense eventually, fear not. Uh, but let's turn to our second story from the book of Ruth. 
So Naomi and her husband and two children are starving in Israel. People are dying. Their stomach ache because of a lack of food. They have no choice but to leave their home. They are carrying only what they can. They, they literally leave behind their home, their family, their security. They walk on foot for days to arrive in a foreign land. It's during the years here that Naomi, her sons marry off. One of them marries a Moabite, Ruth, who the book's named after, who we're familiar with. And the years of famine are harsh. The years of suffering, the years of pain. Naomi has to sit at home and is grinding what little wheat they have when someone comes along. She sees someone running along and she hears the news. Her husband is dead. Her heart breaks. She's not only lost a friend, but also her security. She's lost him away from home in a foreign land. And the pain of loss is only really lessened knowing her sons will actually take care of her, that she has some family still around her. And so they continue to struggle by as foreigners in this foreign land when it happens. I want you to put yourself in Naomi's shoes just for a moment. She's in a foreign land. This is before there's cars, before there's planes. She can't just duck home to Israel. You can't just call them. There's no Centrelink to provide for you. Far from, front, from home, isolated, lonely. And the news comes that both her sons have died. Imagine just the pain and the isolation she must have felt. And so she continues to head back home. In pain and anguish, alone, confused, she tells her daughter-in-laws, who are from the land that she's leaving, to leave. There's no hope with them. There's no help with her. There's no life. Ruth, though, her daughter-in-law, decides to come with her, to go with her. She gives up her own land, her own security, her own people, having just lost a husband, and decides to kind of swap circumstances with Naomi. And this is ancient Israel. Women have very little opportunity here, very little independence. Ruth's kind of only option is sent to pick over leftover bits as they collect grain from the fields around them. She happens to end up in the field of Boaz. And Boaz is a really amazing man and goes out of his way to show kindness because he's heard what Ruth has done for her mother-in-law. And we find out that Boaz is a guardian redeemer. You have seen that in 2 verse 20. Uh, weird word. In ancient uh, Israel, inheritance was passed down to the males. Work was done primarily through the males. Uh, and without a husband, a woman basically just had very little security. That was just the reality of the time back then. It was also really important to the Israelite people to kind of keep their family names going. They didn't want a family to die. They wanted a particular name to die out. And so God was also concerned with this. So in kind of Old Testament law, uh, there's, there's something along the lines of if a husband is to, is to die and his wife hasn't born children, it's actually... Uh, the plan is actually for a relative or a close person from that family to marry the wife. Now, that seems a bit weird, but the point of that is 
having been previously married in the ancient world, now a widow, she doesn't have family, she doesn't really have anyone to provide for. It's, it's not like modern Australia where she can go out and just start working or get a job. She's kind of isolated. And it also means the family name is not going to continue, which they're going to be really concerned about. And so the person who is a close relative who can actually marry her is called a guardian redeemer. They're the people that are eligible to marry the person. So the two women knowing Boaz is an eligible guardian redeemer. They kind of gather around. You can imagine it. They're quite close. Uh, they're really good friends. They have a, a real deep love for one another. And Naomi draws near in 3 verse 1, what we haven't read yet. And she says, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked for, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing, which is separating husk from wheat back in the ancient world. Wash, put perfume on, get dressed in your best clothes, go up to him while he sleeps, uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And so as the plan kind of progresses, the night finally comes. You can kind of imagine the fear, the anticipation, the excitement. It's late, it's dark, and she begins that horrible walk of anticipation, not knowing what's going to happen. How, how is Boaz going to react? What's he going to think? She's, she's breaking virtually every social norm of, of the time doing this. What if she ruins her only chance to have a guardian redeemer actually provide for her? What if she ruins any hope of security in the future? She enters the threshing floor where they do the stuff with the wheat. It's difficult to see, but over in the far corner, she sees a man slumped over. She tentatively walks over to him and lowers herself, and Boaz stirs. Uh, and he's hazed, and in verse 3, 9, he says, who, who are you? And now is the moment. I am Ruth, this is in verse 9 still, I am Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. At this point, there's kind of no going back. She's metaphorically uh, kind of asked Boaz to marry her. It's kind of a question you feel in the pit of your stomach, not knowing what's going to happen, what the response is going to be. She's literally asking a man she barely knows to provide for her future. And she asks this during a time of the judges, which you saw at the very start, which is a time in Israel's history when people are known to just kind of do what they want, really, to not really follow God's law. So it takes a lot of real bravery and courage to do this. And Boaz's response comes in verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. He's not angry. There, though, is somebody who is a closer relative, which means there's somebody who is eligible to be the guardian redeemer before Boaz. So Ruth must wait until morning to find out her and also Naomi, her dearest mother-in-law's fate. Her, her heart, you can imagine, kind of sinks at that moment and she just tossed and turned through the night to see what's going to happen the next day. And the morning comes and Boaz is up bright and early and he goes to the town gate where they meet and straight away finds a relative who is closer. Boaz explains that Naomi is back and is selling her land. And the relative, if you look in chapter 4 now, verse 4, after Boaz tells him this, he says, 
I will redeem it. I'll do what you say. And Boaz kind of slips in that sneaky, but the one condition, verse 5, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, now this is actually a really huge cost. Not only must the redeemer pay for the land, take on another wife whose children actually won't legally be considered his own, but the land he actually purchases, since there'll be children in that family line, won't actually be his ultimately. He weighs up in his mind, and it's not super surprising in verse 6, he says, then I cannot redeem it. And Boaz knows this cost, but decides to take it. Taking on the whole family, committing lots of money to something he doesn't really gain much from. He stands before the elders where all can see him, and that private moment that him and Ruth had the previous night becomes public. And he declares in verse 9 and 10 that he will redeem now, weight is lifted from Ruth as she now has a secure future. Not, not only now, but, but later in life as she gets older. She has children who will look after her, who will continue on her family. She will have protection from them. She'll have grandchildren. And the story uh, kind of comes to a close when Ruth and Boaz get married. And kind of all this anticipation is realized. If you look at uh, 4.13... So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. A son is born from what is a really tragic story. And looking at verse 21-22, Obed, their son, actually is the grandfather of the greatest king of Israel, David, who ultimately is in the same family line as Jesus Christ himself. So there are two stories. may not see how they're connected yet. That's okay. Uh, but what do they actually have to do with us and God in our normal lives? Well, I want you to consider for a moment, why, why did Jack do what he did? Why did he go on this drug-fueled, experience-driven road trip? Which is completely crazy for the time. It's not too different now to schoolies or trekking it to a festival or the backpacking trip around Europe. It's, it's pretty similar. But for Jack, it, it was the failings of life around him that actually drew him there. God had been removed as a serious idea long before Jack. Humanism, humanity, logic and reasoning. But they'd only kind of help humanity be more evil and have destruction on a higher level than we'd ever had before. The new consumerism Jack saw was just a meaningless endeavour. Jack had lost the transcendence in life. Jack wanted more in life, more, more just beyond logic, beyond, beyond stuff. He wanted meaning. He wanted to experience something different to the ordinary of life. Some kind of experience, something more, something than just mundane life that he saw around him. I wonder if you ever feel that. What's it for you? Maybe it's finding the perfect partner to finally get married. Someday, 
you'll find somebody who will kind of fulfill you, that you'll experience a relationship that is just fulfilling. Maybe it's similar to Jack, and it's travel. You're trying to find something more in travel. A crazy kind of whoa moment, a, a moment of transcendence. Something that's just beyond the ordinary of day-to-day life. Maybe it's just finishing uni or getting a promotion or getting to retirement. Trying to find a Walmart, a transcendent moment, something beyond you. Do you ever feel that pressure when you open up Facebook or Instagram or if you don't use any of those, ask your children or something? Uh, and everyone's doing all these crazy things, they're experiencing so much, they're posting up all their pictures of food, which no one really wants to see, but they're posting it up anyway, and you feel that pressure. Here's my next question going to Ruth. Where is God in Ruth? What's he actually doing? Like When you think about it, it's pretty ordinary, if not just a really tragic story. A husband dying, famine, loss, insecurity. Where, where was God actually in all of this? Well, I made a quick list of places I think we can actually see God at work in this. I want to see if you agree. So the first is... Uh, is probably one, which is that Naomi and children had, sorry, Naomi and had children and a husband to begin with. She actually originally was provided for, and she had that family that she was part of. Secondly, God provided Naomi with a daughter-in-law like Ruth. She gave up everything for her. The Lord eventually actually provides food for Israel. You might have seen that was in chapter one, verse six. Ruth then turns to God and follows Naomi. God had set up laws to allow Ruth to be provided for as well as Naomi because of that. Ruth happens to enter the field of a close relative who's a guardian redeemer without even realizing it. Ruth then is able to pick up grain that's left over in relative safety, which although that was a law, this is characterized by a time when People just didn't follow it. People didn't care. This is a person picking up grain that they could otherwise have. But she does it in complete safety. Boaz shows kindness and love, providing enough for Ruth, inviting her to meals, and even giving her more to take back to Naomi before he knows anything about this. And Ruth at night manages to get Boaz and to speak with him in what was a really socially unacceptable way without any real difficulty. Boaz accepts to marry Ruth. Naomi is then provided for in Ruth's marriage, and Ruth's also provided for. And finally, the child of Boaz and Ruth is actually the grandfather of, sorry, the father of, of King David, the ancestor of Jesus. But imagine how it would have looked from kind of the ground when you were. Naomi or Ruth, a terrible situation, a terrible tragedy, what seems like a hopeless situation, a foolish foreign woman leaving everything behind. But see, God was at work in the ordinary. 
Right? Now to us, who I think we're so often looking for more. Some kind of transcendence, some, some experience. And we can forget that something more has been there right in front of us all along. The deeper meaning, something greater to life. That there's a God who's at work in all things, in the ordinary. He's solidly at work in seeming really, seemingly really ordinary people. Ruth, Naomi and Boaz, there's nothing particularly special about them. In fact, Ruth's actually a foreigner. They're not commanders, they're not kings, they're not politicians. They're just average people. And the way God works isn't a lightning bolt. It isn't some mysterious donation of a large amount of money. It's not two charming men who come in sweeping both Ruth and Naomi off their feet to live happily ever after. No, God's actually at work in the seemingly ordinary. What seems like godless circumstances. He's at work providing for Ruth and Naomi. And that's, that's the work of God. He's really working in real life, in real depth. Working in actually quite extraordinary ways in very ordinary people and circumstances. I think we need to learn to recognise God's work in our ordinary life. This is my point. Jack Kerouac looked for something more in life through experience. By doing crazy stuff, by finding transcendence, some wall moment in life. And this thinking has influenced so much of our culture, even my own thinking. I often find myself thinking along those lines, that there must be something more in travel or something. We though see in Ruth that we, we as Christians already have something more in Jesus. We have something more in a God who is at work in the ordinary. We have a God who is at work in all the small things, who has a plan, who's in control. Now that isn't to say travelling or relationships or finishing uni, please, if you're at uni, finish your course, uh, are bad things. There's nothing wrong with those. But, but it's about why we're doing these things. Somebody who I really like, an author, I won't tell his name, uh, said that we've lost the transcendence in the ordinary that we're just failing to see God's work in ordinary day-to-day things. But God, we've seen this evening, does work in the ordinary ways. So, are you looking for God's work in your normal life? Are you seeing his work in the ordinary? How he's providing for you, how he's caring for you, how he's refining and growing? Are you taking time to reflect on this? Because often it's kind of not to a retrospect you can see that. I want, I want you to spend a moment just now, just thinking, where has God worked in your life just in the past week? Or where has God worked in your life in the past year? What's a moment you can think of? How, how has God been at work in your life? Look for our extraordinary God's work in your own life. And here's some examples of places that you may not have thought uh, if you were struggling a bit in the exercise uh, that God has been working. 
It's been providing for you by allowing you to live in Australia. If you're in a household that has around the average income, either just one person or between the both of you, then you are in the top... So you're... There's 99.74% of people are poorer than you in the world. If you have just the average income, which Willoughby may not surprise you, has above the average income on average, you're in the top less than 1%. You're in the top 0.3%. Did you finish year 10 or 12? Well, that puts you in the minority. If you've got or plan on getting tertiary education by the age of 35, then you're in the minority for Australia. Less than 45... Uh, sorry, yeah, less than 45% of Australians under 34 have tertiary education. The family and friends you have around you, God's been at work in your life. What ways you've grown as a Christian or been challenged to think about these things. Even at this own, own church, we've had half past six, the youth group startup, which I'm part of. We've had 40 people come along, three quarters of those are from families who aren't Christian. A chance to share Jesus' love with them. God's at work in what could seem like really kind of ordinary things. In fact, if you're a Christian, God has worked in something that's really extraordinary, which is your salvation itself. We sometimes forget how extraordinary that is. Whether you've been raised in a Christian family or you've become a Christian in your teen years or a bit later, we sometimes forget how amazing it is. Just like Ruth and Naomi's salvation from poverty and what was going to happen there, how much more amazing is our salvation? Is the life that God's given us, that even while we were far away, even while we were rejecting them, even though we continue to fail and have our own issues, our own secrets, the, only thing, the same things that we struggle with, God has actually forgiven us. He's actually loved us. He's, he's been gracious to us. God has brought us from life to death in Jesus. He's done this by pouring out the punishment we deserve on his very own son, onto the son that he loved. Secondly, how are you helping others to see the work of God in this congregation, in each other's lives? I'm actually always really encouraged coming here. We actually know a lot about people. You can go to some other churches that are a bit smaller or a bit bigger, and often people just don't even know what each other does for a living. I'm, I'm really encouraged by how much we care and love one another. But how else could you be helping people here at church to see God's work, to be encouraging them to see him working in the ordinary? I'm always done, but there's one more thing I want to briefly touch on, uh, which is the importance of this for children. Now, this is both in ministry, but I also think it's important to start thinking about things like parenting before your parents. And so there's a really strong link that psychologists have found between family mealtimes and understanding family history and kind of forming your identity. And this sharing of family history and mealtimes in a way that includes God is, is actually really informative, sorry, informative for children. It, it forms and shapes who they are. So how... How will you actually make sure that you protect mealtimes? You actually have time together in the week. 
How will you include God in the ordinary things of your life, whether that's at home, with your family, whether you're a child, whether you have children or a spouse? See, as God's people, we do have life with God, not just in difficult times and not just in times of joy, but in really mundane, ordinary circumstances. And as Christians, we don't need to look for something else. We don't need to be like Jack and search for something, looking for experience or some transcendence or something, something more. We already have something more. We, we have something greater. We have a God who is at work just like he was in Ruth and Boaz's life. A God who is at work in extraordinary ways and what can often seem like ordinary circumstances and people. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you were at work in uh, the book of Ruth, Lord, that you provided and cared for uh, your people, Lord. Thank you that you are at work in our lives, Lord, that you are a God who is nearby, who is working. We thank you above all how you have worked to bring us to life in you, that through Jesus, through your provision of him and his death on a cross, we have life and life that will last forever. Lord, help us to recognise where you are at work in our lives in the ordinary and mundane activities of life. In Jesus' name, amen.